if we really distill wild birth and free birth and unassisted birth and all these acronyms for uh, adjectives, and we really come to like the root of it, um, the root of it is autonomy. The root of it is sovereign decision making. The root of it is it's happening in my body. Therefore, I'm in charge of that. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey, y'all. I am Jamara, and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor, and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife RX. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. Welcome back to another Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. This is Augustine, one of the co-hosts, and I am bringing you a very exciting episode today. I am sitting in circle with Lisa and Sophia uh, two other midwives, and we are um, three midwives who've all had a license at some point and have um, all been wrestling with the increasing uh, home birth, unassisted, free birth, wild birth. There's a lot of different terms that are used. Um, and today we've come together to kind of talk about um, the choices that people are making how they impact those people, how it's impacting midwifery across the nation, um, and just sort of reflect on our own practices and uh, maybe our own births, what what happened for us that made us make some of these choices and kind of um, go down this rabbit hole. Uh, so let's do some introduction first. Um, and I guess I'll start. <laughs> Most people do know a little bit about me, but um, for the purpose of this conversation, um, I feel like it would be helpful to know that I am a midwife of almost 25 years. Uh, I practiced in a lot of different environments, uh, home, hospital, and birth centers, um, and that I personally had three unassisted births. Uh, that's that's the only way I ever birthed. So uh, I learned about midwifery in in my being after having already had babies, and I, I, that felt very significant to me. So. Um, Let's bring in um, Sophia. Sophia, welcome to the call. Will you give an introduction for yourself? Sure, thank you. Um, my name's Sophia Henderson. I practice um, near like Sonoma County, California, um, near Lisa, actually. Um, and yeah, I had one home birth and one home birth transport C-section um, and learned about free birth. It never even was on my radar until after I had babies. 
um, and as a midwife have found myself supporting families who want free birth in a lot of different ways, either, you know, um, prenatal, postpartum, help with documents, birth certificate, or showing up when they have changed their mind three days in or, you know, in different variations like that. Um, and love, love uh, family births and try to mimic that as much as possible when I'm attending births for the families that it fits for them. And yeah, I've just been constantly playing with the, how do I keep my license because it's so handy and also not jeopardize the way I want to show up for families. That's a great question. We're going to dive into it. Let's get Lisa's introduction. Hey, Lisa, welcome back to the podcast. We have another episode hey. with you. And we also have one of your husbands. So we'll link those in the show notes because that was a great That's interview. But welcome back. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm Lisa Rawson, and um, I live just north of Sofia in Mendocino County, uh, Northern California. And I've been a midwife for a long time, 20-something years. Um, I practiced unlicensed and, like, really, like, no tools, just kind of willy-nilly. I don't know. And... Um, then got licensed in California State when I moved here. I was really afraid of being sued because I didn't have a license or in trouble because I didn't have a license. And now I'm and now I stare down the barrel of getting in trouble because I have a license and I do things that I'm supposed to. So um yeah, flip side of that. Um I have five children. The first was born in the hospital, totally natural vaginal delivery at 42 and four days. She's 30. There was not a, nobody even really batted an eye that I went past 42 weeks. It was not, it was such a different thing back then. Um, and then I had um, four home births um, and I had a couple babies on an island Um and I tend to be really hands-off. I have a midwife, but also, like, very much, like, I don't even want you to take my blood pressure. Like, leave me alone. But then I had two births where I really needed a midwife's help. Um, and one where she saved my life and med saved my life. So, yeah. And then I've had a couple births where they just fell out of my body. So, um <laughs> No, well, that is, that's a great, I like, that's a, such a great cross section. I think, um, it, on this call, it, it, we've got such variety, um, and we all came to the same place in our midwifery pathway, like all trained licensed midwives, but there's barriers to that practice as well, right? Licensure is not the end all be all. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation, unpacking a lot of these uh, nuances, the subtlety here. But let's now shift into doing some uh, definitions of some of the words that we're going to be using, because I think lots of folks are are pretty familiar in this world, but we definitely have listeners who are new students or, or even not even in the student world yet, and they might want some clear definitions. Additionally, there's a lot of variability in the way that people use these words, so I thought we should be clear about how we mean it. So let's try to do some definitions together. First of all, there's a lot of midwife adjectives, right? We've heard real midwife, true midwife, authentic midwife, radical midwife, physiologic, biodynamic, 
licensed, right? These are all things that we use to describe midwives. So um, uh, actually, Sophia, on your website, I saw that you use the adjective authentic midwife. Will you define that for us? What does that mean for you? Um, authentic to me, everybody's authenticity is a little different. And for me, that's just like my ongoing goal is to be authentic to the kind of midwife I want to be, which is I'm not the boss of you, you know, that you're a grown ass woman. Um, I'm here with education and experience and I can help counsel, but at the end of the day, it's your choice and that there, nothing is risk-free, you know, there's, um, risk analysis that families play. And some families will say, I'm not willing to stay home. I want to go in. And others are like, no, let's keep going. And that, you know, there's this boundary in this play of who gets to make that decision because the state sees me as responsible, regardless of what the family says. Um, and so there's this like layer of wanting to protect myself, but at what cost um, to, you know, her feeling like she's in charge of her experience. So that's the like, line I try to constantly play is, you know, I want you to feel like that this was your call, you know, and that you are making the choices in your birth. Um, and that's what leaves me feeling like I did a good job. Um, if she feels like I didn't take over her experience and just do things that she didn't want done. Um, and so that's when I'm feeling my like true authentic self as a midwife. Okay. Lisa, is there any adjective that you regularly use to define yourself? Gosh. Um, no, I mean, I don't, I mean, gosh, that's a big question. I don't know. I guess. Let me, let me let you land at license then. Will you, will you define what license midwife means to you? Because we're going to be using that a lot. Okay. I'll take a stab at that one. Um, I think that in the true essence of licensed midwifery, you've taken an oath to the governmental institution that is giving it to you. Um, and that can vary by state, obviously, with CPMs and licensed midwives. I hold a license in four states. And so in my license in some states, is like, oh, you can do breaches and twins. And in other states, it's like, no, you may not. Um, so I think, you know, the word license means um, that you've been bestowed and recognized by an institution. Usually that is a governmental institution or a, um, or a university, perhaps, you know, like it's an oversight. It's an it's an arching overreach organization. Um, it pains me inside to say that um, because I am so anti-government and law. It is like not even funny. Like, I mean, I am like, I am a, I guess one thing I would say, I would call myself an autonomous being. I am a true Norris of my own past person. So um, my my husband, I, I regularly say, oh, don't, like, if I turn my eyes towards something, that force of myself will beat my way. So for me to actually, like, 
have a license in four states. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, <laughs> because here I am, I'm like, fuck the man. And then I'm like, oh, I can get, gather these licenses together and, you know. But I see it for, for my switch to practice. Yeah. For me, I see it as a tool. So for me, my license for me as a midwife is a tool. It is nothing more than that. It is like my hands. It's something that I use to better my clients and families and people and students that I teach or, you know, that are around me that learn um, that I sign for them, you know, so they can get their license and they can, you know, do what they want with it. Um, so yeah, I, maybe that's kind of a long answer, but that's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, um, I'm going to take a stab yes. at a bunch of the, yeah, sure. So yeah. go ahead. it's funny as you were talking, I was thinking how I'm kind of the opposite because I'm such a rule follower like don't play a board game with me you know it's like hardcore competition but I'm like I'm horrible at playing games with my kids because I'm like that is not the rule you have to follow the rule and like when I'm driving I'm like cruise control don't go over like I'm such a rule follower I love that like organization of it except for midwifery I'm like I don't agree with any of these rules that's so <laughs> funny like, my life where I'm like absolutely not no that's funny. Well, I'm going to take a stab at some of the other um, adjectives because they're, I think they're all trying to say the same thing. So some of the things I brainstormed at of time was like real, true, radical, physiologic, biodynamic. Um, I think all of these adjectives are in reaction to a phrase that came into our vernacular, I think, in the 80s, which is medwife. And this is essentially when um, nurse midwifery was fully integrated into the mainstream medical model um, and started delivering, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent of the population in the hospital. Um, and because of hospital policy, somewhat because of training, somewhat because of expectations or the incredible patriarchal processes that happen in the hospital, many of those uh, well-intentioned midwives ended up having to um, render care in essentially the obstetric model of care instead of the midwifery model of care. And so a lot of consumers started feeling like it was a bait and switch. They were going to see a midwife, but they ended up getting medical care. Um, and uh, I think that that, it, that sort of trickled out into the community space as well. Um, and and uh, the reaction to that reality was midwives trying to set themselves apart from how the the midwife term had come to be understood the connotation of what midwifery meant it was like well i'm different than that um a lot of midwives i think are still trying to do that to say i'm i'm different than the mainstream i'm not what you would get if you went xyz mm -hmm. um and i would say and this might be a controversial thought, but I would say that it also feels to me that much of the unassisted free birth world is also in reaction to what is available. And so I want to unpack this together. Um, but first, again, some definitions. Um, 
uh, Born Wild or Wild Birth is a free. It's, it's your business name, so you know about that one. Um, free birth is a phrase that's used a lot to describe this concept. And, you know, I'm I'm so old that it was first, it was unassisted birth. That's <laughs> what I'm familiar with. So let's try to define at least these three um, phrases. Is there any other word used to describe, I guess, autonomous birth is another one that's used sometimes. I've heard family birth. Um, family birth, yeah, you use that. Mm-hmm. Any other phrase that is generally used to describe the the alternative that we're going to unpack today? All right, so the take a line. shot. Yeah. What is wild birth, uh, Sophia? What does that mean? Um, I guess it means like as close to nature as possible. The idea of like most of the time everything goes really smooth if we can like support birth the way it's physiologically meant to be um, and try to not cause problems in the first place that then we have to fix. Um, yeah. Yeah, cool. that's like number one oath. Like, don't cause an issue that now you have to step in on your white horse and save the day, you know? Ooh, that's some powerful imagery and thought process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lisa, what does free birth mean? You know, I, it's interesting to me, like, because of all of these things, I'm more curious about, like, what is the, what is the nuance difference in the, in the terminology, you know? Because like when I think of when somebody says wild birth, free birth, unassisted birth, family birth, natural birth, authentic birth, I think of the same thing. Like I, it just like automatically, I'm just like, aren't they all the same thing? Um, So I don't know, a free birth, I guess the way that I would define it would be um, somebody who is left on their own to make their own choices and maybe with not even any like influence of um somebody even being there to say like do you want some water or do you uh, like anything really like just you know that they have prepared their space um they have their water they have their towels they have their candles they have their soup they have their things that they want that they think they might want during their birth and then they freely go to those things and utilize those things as they need them instead of somebody like offering them to them and disrupting that like headspace that they're in um and like kind of bringing them because we all know birth is like really an out-of-body experience um Unless, and of course, I've had two very in-body experiences as, as a birther. <laughs> very in-body. Like, oh, shit, this is wrong. This is, does not feel right. <laughs> Somebody needs to do something. Um, so, um, so, yeah, but in that sense of, like, it's just this freedom of no overarching suggestions and interruption, I guess. Mm, that's that's a good one. But it's what, freedom yeah. from freedom from. Yeah. I like that. That's a that's a good definition. Yeah. Well, um, unassisted birth, um, is is very descriptive, right? Like, um, it it came out in um, 
really uh, the 70s and, and 80s was the first uh, use of this. And the idea was, again, in reaction to. So an unassisted birth was unassisted. No one there to assist you in the process. Uh, solo birth uh, was the kind of extreme version of that in that no one was there, including any family. Um, but unassisted means that no one medically trained was assisting you. Um, and I have a really interesting history here, and I, I'm just going to plug it because I think it gives credence and relevance to the rest of the conversation we're going to have. But I myself, uh, my mother was attempting to have an unassisted birth with me in uh, 1976 in the mountains of West Virginia on their hippie commune farm. And uh, her sister, who had attended a few births, came to assist her as a support. I would not say that she had clinically relevant education. She sort of fit the role of a doula, although I think she was in some sort of midwifery school schooling process or apprenticeship, but but not enough births to really have relevance there. Um, and she labored for three days. Uh, and uh, then it felt like her water broke. Um, so they went to the local clinic and the doctor did a speculum exam to tell her that she was eight centimeters and she should go home and keep trying. So she did, and she labored for three more days um, with leaking meconium. And um, when her fever spiked is when they finally decided to go to the local hospital. And um, she was delivered under general with a classical incision in a, in a rural hospital in Virginia. And... Um, Obviously, every manner of separation, right? I was in an NICU and she was in operating. My father was in waiting or whatever. And I had um, seizures for the first two weeks of my life. And I was air flighted to Children's Hospital in Ohio in uh, day two. And she developed a massive intrauterine infection that almost took her life. She was rehospitalized multiple times in the first two months of our lives. They'd given her a shot to dry up her milk. And with the help of the late leak, she imagined relactated and was was able to um, eventually really did learn how to breastfeed. Although I had a very severe tongue tie and still do. And uh, she remembers bleeding and cracking from her nipples. So the ultimate unsupported kind of unassisted birth, really. Um, and then I went on and also planned an unassisted birth for my first baby, which was the terror of my parents, of course, because of their experience um but i think uh it it's very deep in my heart and my soul and so i want to go like one layer deeper and i want to try to define what this means in the birthing person and in, in in our bodies when we talk about this um, and I'm given a huge amount of thought to this because aside from planning and having free unassisted births and myself trying to be an unassisted birth, um, I've also been a midwife for a very long time, been at lots and lots of births and taken inquiries from people in lots and lots of spaces in in this decision making. And so it, it's very personal to me. And I feel like if we really distill wild birth and free birth and unassisted birth and all these acronyms for adjectives, and we really come to like the root of it. Um, the root of it is autonomy. The root of it is sovereign decision-making. The root of it is it's happening in my body 
Therefore, I'm in charge of that. Um, and I think what's really curious in this modern day and age is that that sovereign power, which none of us are in a disagreement with, like we all believe that, right? But the reason it has to be stated is because it's missing in other environments, right? Because there's no reason that you can't have a sovereign birth with a midwife. And there's no reason you can't have a sovereign birth in a hospital even with a doctor, mm -hmm. right? It's that it's missing. It's that autonomy and the power and control over your own destiny, over your own body, over the sovereign medical decision-making, clinical decision-making, any decision-making has been robbed, right? And so I think for those of you that might be listening and are, what did they say, uh, free birth hesitant or critical critical of, of this movement, and I use that in quotes because it's been happening for many, many uh, uh, decades, but if you're critical of it, you have to go back to the why. You know, why it happens is because what humans deserve is being taken and I think from that place, we can have a lot of compassion. We can have a lot of, of deeper understanding and um, really even commonality. Because I think if we surveyed a bunch of the midwives who are listening to this or in the country, we would probably get to say, like, they also believe that women should have autonomy and authority over their own body. In fact, that's why many of them came became midwives, right? Is they just like, don't want to end up in jail because of that economy. I think that's right. What so, so then here's the next intersectionality. And you're exactly right, Sophia. Is the practice of that is different. Yeah. yeah. The practice of midwifery, the regulation of the practice of midwifery forces us many times to break that sovereign relationship, to, to force the person in whom the experience is happening to fit in, to shoehorn them into external guidance, rules, regulations, procedures, policies, techniques, what have you, right? And maybe one of the most obvious examples of that is the due date, right? Yeah. Lisa, you, you, were, you carried to whatever it was. What did you say? Yeah. 42, or 42, 42 and 4. 42 and 4. And I carried to 43 and 44 weeks, personally. Um, and if we go back several generations, it was totally normal to stay pregnant until whenever your body wanted to be in labor, right? Induction was not common like it is now. A third of all people are being induced currently in the United States and another third are being augmented. So we have 60% of, of pregnant people are having medications to speed up their labor. That is nothing like what used to happen even even one one decade ago one one generation ago. yeah but there's also there's also a whole population in that 30 percent that's left over that's being um umbrellaed into this like epo stripping yeah. membranes yeah like all of this stuff yeah. you know yeah. and that in an effort like... to in an effort to not lose the perceived right. say like authority and power they're yes being shoehorned through a process as well right yeah exactly 
Yeah. Also, and it's natural induction. Right. Yes. Yeah. And it's under the guise of like, it's under the guise of like, we're just trying to keep your autonomy. Right. It's like that because, because it's already being taken from them. So, so it's like, there's this, um, there's this like veil. There's this like mist um, when working in these systems um, with these protocols and procedures and these large books that are on the shelf in birth centers and um, places where it's like, well, we're just, you know, trying to keep you out of the system. But they're what they're actually doing is they're trying to keep them in this system. Right. So mm. in our language, we constantly have this um, language that we put forth to women um, specifically, and we do it to children, too, um, where we are saying we're giving you this. It's like a Hansel and Gretel saying we're giving you this to keep you away from this. But in that dynamic, we're only giving them two choices. And we're not giving them the third option, which is, you can say, fuck you to both of these. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I get off down. You can right. opt to both of these, you know? Right. Yeah. And then yeah. we just don't talk about that. So yeah. we talk yeah. about this, like, natural induction methods and things like that. Like, this is natural, but it's not natural. Yeah. There are induction yeah. well, before Before we get into... Um, you know, the methods, I, I want to stay at this, at this theory piece, because I think this is like the crux of, of what's happening in this debate. And it is a debate. There are midwives that say, I will never under any circumstances support unassisted birth. Free birthers are crazy. Right. Like there's this NBC uh, mainstream article that came out in 2019, interviewing a free birther who went to 45 weeks and had a fetal demise, you know, like it is, it is an active debate, right? And right. those that have power tend to be vilifying or at the very least infantilizing anyone who makes a choice other than the mainstream, right? So it is a debate. And I I, I don't really want to get into the debate yet. I want us to stay right, at, like understanding why. So if we, we, we sort of understand the why of choosing autonomy, Right. The why of choosing autonomy and personal sovereignty and avoiding all of that. Right. But to understand the other why, <laughs> I'm playing such the devil's advocate today. I'm wearing red. So it <laughs> 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 to, to get the other side, I think we have to go again one layer deeper and we have to understand the competing lenses through which people see this argument. And the one we've just been talking about is the lens of personal health. Through personal health, of course, you have the sovereign decision-making about your body, your baby, your birth, right? Like, of course. But many um, detractors in this conversation are looking at it through the lens of public health. And this is where it gets really tricky because I have a master's degree in public health. And looking at statistics, I can tell you that the outcomes are not fantastic. It's right. not just imaginary. It's not just stories. It's real. When you look at birth certificate data, 
those babies who are attempted to be born in a community-based space without support from a medically trained provider have worse outcomes. And it's not just in the third world. It's not just in developing countries or low-income countries. It's in the United States. There's much worse outcomes for births that have no medical attendant. That's kind of irrefutable. And so this conflict um, is the debate between public versus personal health. And I'm not sure we have any kind of an answer, but I think it's important to acknowledge that they have competing interests. And we see this in other areas. And I want to just take a zoom out of birth for a second and look at another field where this happens. And this is true really clearly in the vaccine debate, right? Right. What one person wants to choose to have injected in their body should be their sovereign decision making. It should be their authority because medical decisions about your body are kind of an inalienable right. However, whether wherever you land on this, however, the the pro-vaccine argument is fully centered on the public health view. Like it changes the numbers of the people, even though Mm. it might not for that one person. And within the vaccine conversation, there is an acceptable amount of loss in that public health conversation, right? right? And so now if we put that back over birth, public health policies applied to birth do have a certain acceptable amount of loss. They also have an acceptable amount of intervention, of of cesareans, of NICU admissions, of loss of breastfeeding. Like there is an acceptable threshold for public health by which they define success. But when you ask the individual, no loss, no, no intervention, no, like it's not acceptable for the individual. And this is the conflict. This is where we are at the seat of the debate. So when you're interviewing clients who might come to ask for your help, do you see this as the crux of the debate as well? Does this ring true for you? Yeah, I mean, one question I had about like the statistics is, we'll just call it unassisted for sake of you know going into all the titles. But um, for these statistics, is this planned unassisted or accidental unassisted, or is it all left in planned. one planned? planned. Okay. So I yeah. wondered about. Um, yeah, I'm mostly citing right now the Oregon birth and fits, especially uh, the report that came out in 2012. Mm-hmm. But it's been repeated multiple times. There was an Illinois report in the 80s. Um, There aren't very many populations to study this, right? Because it is oftentimes so underground and so underreported. But the times that it is, it it seems pretty pretty clear. Um, And so kind of the ethical conversation that comes out of that clarity is, um, does the state or policymakers or public health advocates, do they have any right to dictate individual care decisions. Like, is for the greater good, does that really trump my individual rights? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, it like the two comparisons is birth and vaccines at this point. And I guess the question I would have is how could one person's birth affect a whole population? Other than, I mean, the only thing I could really picture is maybe cost you know it's like 
long cost, ultimate uh, lifetime wages, GDP, like, you know, analysts can go into any metric, you know, but if, if the goal is a thriving society with participating individuals, uh, birth is the root of, of that metric, right? I mean, I think I would think that mental health is probably maybe not considered. Um, I made like do not art. Right. So uh, that decision making for people, because I, I know other than like physical trauma, a lot of it is like this mental trauma and emotional trauma that people yeah. expect to avoid again, uh, that might not be considered um, and can maybe skew the numbers. It's definitely not. It's definitely not. That's a very good point. How about you, Lisa? Yeah. Um, uh, with anyone who wants an unassisted birth, do they, they, well, I mean, a large part of the people that come to me through my, um, individual practice, because I do work in birth centers and I do, um, and I do, and that population is so different. It's so different. So I work in like two very vastly different populations, um, but in my own personal clientele, people come to me because usually because they don't want ultrasounds, they don't want testing, they don't want, they want individualized care. Um, and, and then, and then I give them education and resources and they kind of, you know, guide their care. And I'm like, okay, like, Here's the GBS test. Do you want, you know, or usually they bring it up. It's kind of interesting because through podcasts and social media and things like that, they're being like, what's this GBS thing? What's this groupie strep saying? Which it, groupie strep is like the bane of my existence and in informed consent. It's like such a rabbit hole of a subject. I hate it. And it also like is this microcosm of like massive confusion that we put on somebody and these like minute, tiny little, tiny little specks of statistics and, and, you know, down the rabbit hole, and if your baby is, and then if there's that many people and, and then it's just like, blah, you know, and nobody really knows what's going on anymore. And then they ultimately will ask, like, have you ever had a GPS positive baby, you know, or like, they'll ask, like, in my practice, like, have you ever seen or in the community of midwives, like, in the community of, I've been here for 12 years and in Mendocino County of all the babies, all the babies that have been born in the hospital or out of the hospital, we have had one case of vitamin K deficiency of the newborn. One in 12 years, you know, like that's not and GBS. What about GBS? GBS. Um, we've had a couple of GBS positive babies. Um, none of them have died. They all got antibiotics. They all presented sickly and then they got antibiotics. So, you know, I serve a point. Well, you're bringing it, you're bringing it back to such an important point is that, is that we, we treat pregnant population as one demographic, but actually yeah. there's so much more subtlety to that. And, um, yeah, both of you working in Northern California, um, and I, practice for a long time in Oregon, our demographic, even if you just limit it to that geographical area, is predominantly white and well-to-do, right? And so then that's another piece where um, yeah. we need to uh, address how skewed um, the midwifery population is 
um, in different parts of the country or just in general compared to the obstetrical population. Yeah. Yeah. Because predominantly where these people have access, they have access to education, they have access to nutrition, they have access. I mean, I definitely have had clients who, you know, are under the age of 16, uh, BIPOC, um, you know, and have done free services and had a free clinic day twice a month for, for many years. Um, but it's definitely, um, different. Like I worked in, in a birth center in LA, um, where one day all we did was see sex workers and that population, when you're doing informed consent, um, they're, they're what's on their radar and what they're wanting informed consent about is so different than, you know, the white population, um, in, you know, Northern California outside of the city. So yeah, it's, it's very, it's very, and the access of public health. But I, there's this thing though, for me, that's like kind of always kind of in the back of my mind. Um, when we, we have a population of people who are giving birth, who are not their natural state as homo sapiens, even four years ago. Okay. So there's this thing in the back of my mind all the time that I'm like, okay, if we're saying, if people are saying, I want to be in my most natural state of giving birth, um, and I'm going to take myself out of the system and trust myself, where is that foundation coming from? Okay. Because like, and this is the part for me where I'm like, I really hope that people are educating themselves into listening to their intuition, not educating themselves about their GBS and all of that kind of stuff and how to resuscitate a baby or whatever, but like in truly listening to their intuition and their innate self, because so much of that has been removed from us throughout our, our entire lives. And when we're looking at things on Instagram or on the internet and we're like, oh, that sounds really good. And I'll just follow my intuition when people can't even, can't even know where due north is based on where the sun is setting and rising because we've like worked it out of ourselves as people, like as homo sapiens, then that I'm like, oh gosh, how, how do they know when they want help or when they need help or when they, that that intrinsic inside part of themselves. Like we have cluttered up our in tune sense of ourselves so much with smartphones and the internet. And I mean, I see it just from where, how I had my daughter 30 years ago to how I had my youngest one 17 years later. Uh, yeah. We're on a trajectory of change. That's a trajectory. Yeah. And it's like, that for me, it's not about whether they have testing or they have an unassisted birth or whatever, but like this, I just hope that everybody, whether you give birth in the hospital or, or free birth or with a midwife, that people like learn to listen to their, in, to their inside voice. Like, yeah, I can I cannot even hear it. Yeah. yeah. Talk to us. So I, 
I don't know if this is true for anyone else because I only know what it feels like in my body. I have a son with complex medical issues. I spent a lot of time in the hospital when I was trying to avoid going there in the first place and have had to play a lot with intuition versus fear versus anxiety, which can be really confusing. Um, And over the years, I've been able to fine tune it and it's like really easy for me to tell the difference now. Anxiety and fear can be really similar. It usually has a lot of dialogue for me, a lot of storytelling, a lot of sensation in my body and like heart palpitations and what ifs. And every time my intuition has come across, it's been like crystal clear, calm, maybe a couple words like to the point, even if it was like a negative thing, but just like, you know, really clear. And not, I love that around it and I remember the first time I ignored it my son's pulmonologist wanted me to try albuterol for him to see if he had asthma on top of his lung defect and I remember my body was like no and but I talked myself into doing it because I was like this is like probably one of the safest medications I know so many people who are on it and it was his first helicopter ride when his throat closed um and then there was another time where he was planning to have a surgery that was elective And everything in my body was like, no, don't do it. And I canceled it. And I was like, who knows? Maybe it was unrelated. We were going to get a car accident. Or I I don't know. wasn't the right timing. But I just told myself I would never question it again. And I would just, like, listen to it, even if it didn't make sense cognitively to me. Mm, That resonates a lot with me. Dialogue, dialogue, and anxiety and heart stuff. I was like, this is not my intuition. This is, like, other Mm -hmm. shit that that I've been Mm -hmm. hearing. Yeah. Yeah, I would... I would call that like like head decision making versus body knowing. Um, and we have a we have a great calibrating your intuition worksheet on the cover of our of our website. We'll link it in the show notes because I agree. Yeah. I, you can get clearer and clearer about you know yeah. what's coming through. I, I love that from you, Sophia. Well, yeah. Let's let's circle back to this um this 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 thing uh, so unnameable about where what we're talking about today, and um. I want to go, uh, I want to kind of get off theory and definitions and kind of go into the meat of it. And a lot of people listening uh, who follow my work and follow my education will know, and maybe can quote me, um, advising them not to attend unassisted birth. And so uh, this is because um, I, in my position as, as consultant and mentor to midwives nationally, I am very concerned about the loss of midwifery lives. Um, every single uh, year, more than one midwife is arrested in the United States. Um, in 2019, it was about 12 in that year. Um, every single month, I get calls with sentinel events, babies or moms in ICU and or demises. And I feel it's my moral obligation to try to keep as much of the workforce supported in their work as possible and that is at complete that's at odds with how I feel in my own body for my own births and so um I feel like I want to kind of go on record on this and then I'd like to ask you both you know your your take on this but um I have said in multiple interviews before that I am very supportive of 
the midwives that break the mold, that violate their protocols, that, you know, do what is right for that couple. I'm very supportive. And it's very, very dangerous for them. This is this is a yes and situation. I think it's very, very dangerous. And having done multiple consults on multiple situations where midwives are absolutely nailed to the wall in every way that you can imagine as a result of supporting the sovereign decision-making of their clients and multiple other situations where clients, you know, abort their sovereign decision-making and blame their midwives for the outcome. Mm -hmm. That I am very, very concerned for midwives who do that. I am supporting, like, Supportive beyond belief. We need people to question the status quo. We need people to try to push back that ever-marching line of violation of sovereign decision-making. And I am very supportive. But I think there are so many um, midwives and this new alternative word called birth keepers. I think there are so many birth keepers and radical midwives or whatever the adjectives are that that are in mortal danger they are in risk of going down hard and they don't know it or maybe not moral danger but legal danger yeah they're not there i have a moral responsibility but they are in mortal danger like i mean if you define midwifery as you like they're they're gonna lose midwifery they're gonna lose their midwifery life and that's what I mean by mortal. Like nobody's gonna probably come shoot them, but like I um, moral, <laughs> mortal, mortal danger. Yeah. Uh, in other words, like their their life is at risk. Yeah. The life as they know it is at serious seriously at risk. And so I have advocated very strongly that like if you want to be that midwife who's challenging everything and saying no to the system, like Lisa said, anti-establishmentarianism, man. If you're that midwife, like I'll support you hundred percent. But I'm very, very scared that there is a lot of initiation into midwifery or birthkeeping without the knowledge of how dangerous it is to do that. And I'm also equally supportive of midwives who have very strong boundaries and say no all the time. No, you're outside my risk. No, you're outside my boundaries. No, you're you're not a qualified provider. Like this isn't, no, I will not attend your birth. Like I am so supportive of midwives that also do that because we also need the midwives kind of maintaining the space that we already occupy in the maternity world. Because if, if we lose them, we're going to lose that space as well, if, if that makes sense from a big level perspective. So like, I, I, I kind of take that unique place where I'm like incredibly supportive of both. Very alarmed, very alarmed for the ones that are out there and don't realize the risk they're taking. But I'm incredibly supportive. Um, and I wonder, um, Lisa, Sophia, if you, if you guys want to comment on this from that big picture perspective yeah i mean i i always say like how you're saying how supportive you are and for me it like both makes sense both make us i think it's a yes and i understand why someone would say no and i understand why someone would say yes you know Mm -hmm. and i understand why someone would ebb and flow between the two maybe depending on the family or their intuition or the situation, you know, just like across the board, it makes sense for me. Like in one way, how could I risk everything for one family? You know, my ability to serve so many families, 
my ability to support my own family for one family. Like I just can't take that chance. Um, and then you hear stories where everything was in the book and she's still in trouble. You know, I know someone right now who wasn't even mm -hmm. at the birth and she's still in trouble because of back paperwork or something that somebody transferred care. And it, it's just like, it feels like you be as protected and like careful as you want to be. And sometimes it's still going to come out. Yeah, well, midwifery is the yeah. same as life. Like, it, it's not safe. None of us gets out alive. Life is not safe. Like, not, yeah. So so in some ways it's bad. But I think, um, you know, from, from a similar perspective, uh, we need both. We need midwives who are breaking the rules and breaking down the patriarchy and, and charging this, this um, loss of sovereignty. We also need midwives who only take care of the very highly risk assessed kind of perfect cases. Like we need both. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'll tell you what we don't need. Hmm. What we don't need is we don't need more organizations and more collectives of people um, judging, shaming, directing, and telling everybody what the fuck to do. I'm so sick and tired of it. I cannot even, I just want to moment. I knew you were going exactly yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. <laughs> don't need that. We don't need any yeah, more. What's an example? Give an example. Um, I'll put you on the spot. Yeah, you did. Um, well, okay. I wore my t-shirt that says we are all humans because I wear this t-shirt on occasions when I want to remind everybody that we're all we're all on this fucking planet together and just chill. Like, so, um, I mean, I have a real issue with, um, probably, I guess, I don't know what exact organization it is. I don't know if it's the free birth society or the birth keeper society or whatever. I have a real problem with people putting stuff on Instagram saying, you don't need anybody telling you. You have all the answers with inside you. Follow your body. Follow your intuition. Birth is natural. Blah, 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 blah. But what you do need is our $79.95 class that starts on September 1st and goes for six weeks that's going to tell you how you need to do this thing, this natural thing that you already know inside of you. And I have a real issue with like uh, monopolizing um, information that is innately natural to all of us. I feel like, I mean, when you publish a book, right? When you publish a book, there's money that goes into that book, right? So there's time, there's photographs, there's paper, there's printing. So you're going to charge for that book, right? And education oftentimes goes into that. But when you're just doing like free information on things, then that's like innately in, in to us, but then you create a business. Like you're constantly, it's like a- It's both ways, Lisa. I mean, this, this is also midwifery. It is also midwifery. And what's interesting too, one of the things that you had said earlier, I was like, oh, this is like the crux of that, like personal health versus public health. Right. So you were saying like you support, you don't want to see midwives being 
lost basically either due to being, um, you know, legal stuff, losing their license or trauma from going to births unsupported or like, right? Because of that public health, right? Right? We need, like, one of my favorite things is that a midwife for every woman, right? A midwife for every person. So that's a lot of different kinds of midwives. That's a lot of a lot. Of we just need a lot of midwives, it's, which we don't. So have, it's like right? there's that public policy. There's that public, like you're looking out for the greater good of the public. That you want lots of different midwives and lots of different capacities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then in your own personal, you're like you know making these decisions, right? And so that is a dynamic. But I, I have I take real issue like real issue with organizations that come together and as women tell other women what to do with their fucking bodies, you know, and And you feel like that's happening with trans people, BIPOC people like, yes, I do. I, I think that whenever anything gets popular or there's like this, like, you know, this movement that happens, people are going to try to make money off of it. And yeah, for me, sure. it's like, okay, I get that. I totally get that. We live in a capitalist society and the world is run on money. I charge for my services. I charge a lot of money for my services. But also, I think that it's the shame, right? Oh, so there's oh. a lot of shaming that happens. I would say there's also a lot of fear monitoring. Like, like all sides. Profiting off of people's fear is happening. Yeah a lot in that in both sides you know and that's yeah very disturbing. yeah i can just see, like delivery and the way you communicate something because someone sharing about like trust your body and all this could also just be informing someone of another way that they might not have yes yeah. like when i had my two babies with the midwife i hadn't i didn't even like recognize that you could just do it like it didn't even cross my mind and who knows what i would have chose if that had been in my you know mm-hmm awareness um so like sometimes it could just be like hey you know there is another way to go about it you know if it feels right for you but yes i agree lisa sometimes delivery is poor (laughs) there's also a lot of issues with like proselytizing right um i'm using that phrase from religion but you know it applies here um right i think there there's a there's a there's a, a a ta- like sort of a sort of tangible feeling that that free birth communities society I don't know what they're called are attempting to proselytize convert people Th- that I have a lot of worry about you know I, that's one thing I always tell midwives is like do not hunt for clients like that is the most dangerous thing you can do like they have to be fully sold on what you're selling like you don't you don't go and sell you don't market you make yourself available in the public space and then you screen everyone that comes to you very closely, right? Um, because that that check and balance doesn't happen for the free birth societies. Like they're not held responsible for the information they're sharing. There's a lot of proselytizing that happens. Like convert to our way. Right. And that's scary to me. Yeah. And I think one of their views too is that, you know, they hold really strongly that you're a grown ass woman. Like we trust that you can hear a bunch of different information and come to the decision that's right to you. So I think they are falling back on this. Like 
that we don't need to be held responsible because like you are well, like we trust you to hear a lot of viewpoints and make the best decision for you um at least yeah and yet and yet right so so like this is another place right is is certainly infantilizing grown-ass women is deplorable and and is part of the problem in the medical world that we're all trying to get away from right is treating people with this respect with this uh trust with this like again you have to stop decision making it's your body it's your birth what have you and yet (laughs) um there is so much pervasive fear as a result of a hundred years of obstetrical intervention that oftentimes women can't figure it out. They can't see the truth. They can't see their own truth. They can't find their intuition. They're so bombarded with a, a, a culture of, of terror in all directions. Mm-hmm. Midwives do this too. That um, oh yeah, I think many are susceptible. I mean, we have the rise of the influencer, right? Like social media influencers are influencing people's beliefs uh, because so many people are not clear on their own beliefs. I mean, this is the the main accusation of the last two elections is that is that people are essentially unable to distinguish the truth, and it is a society work. Yeah, go for it. Just had an interview where she's going to be a potential VBAC. Um, she had a cesarean with her first, and she, everyone's telling her every horror story they could possibly find about ruptured uterus. Yep. Like, I've always wanted a home birth. I felt it in my heart, and I can't stop this nagging story in my head to where she's, like, not sure if she's going to. Oh. She was considering, like, midwifery, prenatal, postpartum support, but planning on birthing in the hospital, but wants to go at the very last minute, but then what's the point of that? And just, you know, like, totally. you know, where it could force someone into the hospital because of that fear story too, you know? Totally. That happens every damn day. Totally. That's happening constantly. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And now for it's sure. shifting a little bit the other way where people are so fearful that they're just like, I'm going to do it by myself. <laughs> That that was certainly my experience. I mean, I, I can say thinking back over it, um, you know, I was a young military wife living on base, and I went to my first appointment at the medical OB at the base. Then I was like, "Fuck no, I will never go back to that place." If this clinic is any representative of that big hospital, like, nope. Not at all. Yeah. I'd rather die alone in the backyard and be treated with that level of disrespect and horror. You know, so I, I definitely can see that it's happening, you know, in all directions. Um, you break and down. the only person I know I can trust is myself. Well, but see, that's a trauma response. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a that. trauma response. And when you, and it actually is, um, I mean, it actually is very naive because if you are, if you are making decisions based on fear and trauma, then you actually, unless you do a shit ton of work and you face those fears and you face that trauma and you face all of that, then you are making decisions that are not based on trusting yourself. You oftentimes can't see it, you know, for a you free. Yeah. Like when you're so in it, you can't see it. I mean, I did not know that was a trauma-based decision. At the trauma, I did not know that my little infant self had one look at medical and remembered what it felt like yeah. to be that interventive baby. Like, I didn't understand that yeah. at the time. I was 21. But now right. that I understand and I see it in all the other people. And so this is like yeah. going back to like the brilliance of midwifery 
is that we have the we have the ability to speak both languages, to see the the broad thirty thousand foot view, to give true informed decision making, to elicit intuition, to hold the space for that sovereign decision making recovery. Because in essence, we all are. I mean, we live in the patriarchy. We're all trying to recover our authority, and that I mean. That's why I'm a midwife and I've been a midwife for 25 years. And and on reflection back, I wish I had a midwife myself, not anyone I knew at the time, because I know there's like five reasons I would have been sectioned for my birth, you know, not to mention the lateness. I went long and had huge babies and took forever and like all the things, you know, like I, I would like myself as the midwife, you know, but I don't, I didn't know anyone at the time, but that that's why I've done this work for so many years and now why I commit myself to teaching and mentoring the next generations because I I really truly believe that that midwifery is the solution and I I don't mean midwifery with all the adjectives I mean the root of midwifery which is you know with woman you know sage femme it's, it's the wise provider who mm-hmm. sits at the feet of the people they serve and helps them find their own pathway illuminating the pathway that is otherwise cloaked and purposefully hidden and disturbed by the powers that be in this patriarchal society yeah oftentimes you know oftentimes in birth it's interesting working at birth centers because i'll go on a shift and like i've never met these people so here i am at their birth that i've never met before and so it really causes you to look at yourself as a midwife and and how how, how they see you how they see am you. i offering what is my yeah. offering to this family yeah so it's like what 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 can i possibly give them that gives them you know the feeling that they know that they you know and i i had a i had a birth um i don't know 3 weeks ago or something this is her first out of hospital birth she had had three natural births, no epidurals or anything like that. However, she had been checked. She had been told when to push. Her waters had been broken. Um, but she had a natural vaginal delivery, um, which in my mind, I'm like, that's not a natural vaginal delivery. But it, it is, okay, in the very foundation of the essence of it. No drugs. And... So she comes in and she's in active labor and she's like, should I get in the tub? All every, everything in her labor was, should I get in the tub? Do you think you should check me now? Um, is my, maybe you should, what about my water? What's going to happen to the water? Does the water, um, do you know when that's going to happen? Well, how will I know when to push? Like I, okay. So the water broke. Oh, it just broke on its own, you know? And so immediately I was just like, when I came in, uh, when she came in to the room and I met her for the first time and her husband, I just kept saying to her over and over and over again, my mantra to her was like, it'll happen. It's going to happen. You'll feel it. You'll know. Just with every contraction you have, You'll feel some pressure. It'll break. Maybe, maybe your water won't break. I don't know. It's okay. It's totally fine. 
everything's fine. I see this all the time. You're doing great. You know, and then she was like, wanted to get out of the tub. So is that okay? Can I get out of the tub? Do I have to have my baby in the tub? Because it's a water birth center. Oh, no, no. You can have your baby in the shower. You can have it in the home. I don't care. You just have it wherever it comes out. She gets onto the bed. She's like, I don't really know. What, I mean, I think I need you to tell me when to push. And I was like, mm, I think, how about we just, um, we just see what your body does in the next couple of contractions. How's, I, I think you're doing great. Let me just dry you off a little bit. And then sure enough, two contractions later, she's like, I feel really like, I feel, and I'm like, oh, that's really great. You're pushing. You're already doing it. You're already doing it. Your body is just doing it. And then she just pushed her baby out. And the baby came onto the bed on the chuck pad. And she just kind of sat back and looked at her baby. And then she just was like, she looked at me and she was like, oh, my God. And I was like, yeah, look at what you did. And she picked her baby up and she put it on her chest. And then at her, like, two or four-week postpartum visit, she said to me, she said, you know, I had never met you and I was really afraid because I had never met you in all of my prenatal care. She's like, but you knew exactly what my body was doing and I was clueless. Mm -hmm. And it was, it struck me because here we are, she's had two natural vaginal deliveries in the hospital and she did not trust her body. She did not know what her body was doing or trust her body. And it was, it really struck me and it's like, stayed with me for a while because she wasn't in a panic. She wasn't panicking. She, she didn't have fear looking outside for direction. Yeah. There was no fear. Like she didn't present. She wasn't screaming. She wasn't quote hysterical. Hate that word, you know, but she just presented in such innocence and naivety and was like, her, her sovereign authority had already been robbed from her three births ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it just was like, it's just stayed with me because I think that the story that we hear all the time is fear-based, right? Trauma-based, fear-based. When you get married, everybody wants to tell you about their divorce. When you have a baby, everybody wants to tell you about how they suffered and they had a fourth degree tear and whatever, you know? or their aunt's baby died or so I, why people, why we do this? It's like, we can also bond in places that have no trauma. Like, can we just like start pushing that? Like no shame, no trauma. We can bond over happiness too. But you did though, what you did though, Lisa is like the real, I think the epitome of what I consider to be midwifery, uh, true, authentic, radical, like whatever it is, like, you you actually practiced midwifery and redirecting her questioning outside back into herself is right. is the work of midwifery and i feel like this is a great place to end and i'm going to end with the fabulous quote from our our good colleague friend emily graham we all need a midwife not to do our work for us but to see us naked and call us beautiful, to acknowledge we are more than a vessel, to witness our power and remind us when we have forgotten what we can do. Yeah, that's beautiful. 
thank you both for joining in this conversation and uh, continuing to expand upon what it is we do here. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. See you guys. Thank you.